The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. So go ahead and flip to John 14, and uh, I'm going to read that too, um, just so that we have a context uh, and be thinking about some of those themes of building a house and so on and so forth. John 14, and uh, I'll just read the whole chapter. I'm going to read it fairly quickly, but you can follow along. John 14, verse 1, this is the Word of God. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it fearful be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, 
so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful tonight that your dwelling place is with us and us in you. You have given your Spirit who has taken up residence in us, and we consider ourselves at home. Help us, Father, to see your word, to know your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So throughout uh, this gospel, John has made painstakingly detailed attempts at drawing on Old Testament imagery to explain the different words, the different actions of Jesus. And chapters 13 through 17 are, of course, no different. In fact, these chapters are very much like Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, towards the end of the book, Moses, if you recall, he gives his final sermons to Israel, and here is Jesus giving his farewell sermons to the new Israel. Deuteronomy, uh, if you remember, itself is actually modeled after the five-point covenant model in Scripture. Um, And Deuteronomy gives Israel laws, gives Israel commandments and things that they're to obey and adhere to. And here we have Jesus. He gives his commandments to his disciples and tells them that true love for Christ is marked by obedience and adherence to those commandments. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's how we know what love is and how we know someone truly loves Christ. Are they keeping the commandments of God? In fact, loving God, loving neighbor, and loving each other in the community, um, that is the mark of the covenant community. True love is love of God, love of neighbor, and that's, that's the mark. That's how the world knows who are, are his disciples. He's already told us that. So when Jesus is gone, they need to remember and follow all of these instructions that he has given. And what's really interesting about this passage is Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to aid us in that process. So not only will we remember things, we're going to be guided. We're going to um, have wisdom. We're going to have things given to us. Just like Israel was to follow Joshua into the promised land after Moses is gone, so the new Israel is to be led by the Spirit, who, having anointed Joshua then, now anoints God's people that now for the task of taking the new promised land, the new, the entire world. Also, Deuteronomy contains prophecy about the future, prophecies about the future, and Jesus does the same thing here. He talks about where he's going and what's going to happen when he goes. We'll, we'll talk about what that means in a minute. And then he even, in John 17, he closes his time with them in extended prayer, which at the end of Deuteronomy we have songs that are left of us, much like prayers. So there's a whole lot of overlap here in the text. One key similarity, though, that I want to pick up on, similarity in Deuteronomy and similarity here in this, these passages before us, is the change in leadership motif, the change in leadership. Now, hovering over the entire book of Deuteronomy is the fact that Moses is going to die. He's not going into the promised land. God already forbade that for him. And he's, he's about to depart. And then Joshua is going to be tapped to replace him. Moses is going to die. He's not going to the promised land. Joshua is going to take over. In like manner, though, Jesus explains to his disciples that he is leaving. And subsequently, they too will have a new leader. And the new leader is the advocate, the Holy Spirit. 
So in one sense, the Holy Spirit advocate, he is our Joshua who moves the church forward, conquering and to conquer. That's the, the change in leadership here. Now, part of the reason that all of these are coming to a head is because of the nature of Jesus' ministry. He's going to the cross, we know that, and it's this very hour that the Son of Man is glorified, and it's in this glorification that God reveals His intentions to do something magnificent. God in, in the cross, and in, in Christ in, in the cross and, and the empty tomb, is all a grand part of God putting the world back together. But God doesn't just put the world back together by a snap of a finger. God enters into creation through Jesus the Son. And in His work, in, in Jesus' work, which climaxes at His death and resurrection, God brings about a new cosmic exodus. That's the motif. This new exodus, the forgiveness of sins, and the deliverance of the elect from the bondage of sin is meant to be a means of the larger building of Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So quite literally, here's what I'm arguing. The kingdom Christ established 2,000 years ago is an entire political and economic social order that infiltrates and expands throughout the world in the mission activity of the church. So we can't be dualists, we'll come back to that later, and think that the church, all we need to do is just gather and then stay away from the world the rest of the week in order to get to Sunday where we get to gather again. When Christ established his kingdom 2,000 years ago, that kingdom had with it, he brought with it an entire political and economic social order. In other words, we have things to say about things that happen in the world. We should, be, we should have things to say about um, incremental abortion laws. <laughs> we should have things to say about um, police officers who shoot unarmed people and kill them. We have things to say because we have God's word which guides us into all truth. So that's, that's where I'm heading. The, the message is called The House That Jesus Built, and you'll see why it's called that as we continue. Now look at the text real quick in verse 1. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus tells his disciples, don't be troubled. Don't, uh, don't freak out. <laughs> in other words, my translation. This is a clear echo of Joshua chapter 1, which says in several places in the first chapter alone, be strong and what? Courageous. Be strong and be of good courage. Why were the disciples troubled. Why would Jesus have to tell them this? Well, if you remember, well, and, and also, why, why would Joshua say that to Israel way back then? Well, for Israel, Moses had died. This was a traumatic event. And I, for Israel, they perceived it to be um, basically instability in their kingdom. Their leader was gone who would lead them now. And the same thing happens here with Jesus and his disciples, and especially in chapter 13, if you remember from a couple weeks ago. Jesus tells them, look, I'm going away, and where, you're, where I'm going, you cannot come. He tells them. And, though, interestingly enough, Jesus, if you look back at chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus himself was troubled in spirit. And then he tells the disciples not to be troubled in spirit. It's not a contradiction, by the way. It's not a problem for us to, to say that. 
But he explained to them what was going on. He explained to them that Judas was going to betray him. Remember, he hands him the morsel, and Judas leaves at night. It's clear, well, it wasn't clear for the disciples, but it's clear that he's the one who's going to betray him. And not only is Judas going to betray Jesus, Peter is going to deny him before the rooster crows three times. So the disciples were obviously deeply disturbed by this news, which is why Jesus tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. It was a troubling time. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Okay? The, um, <laughs> we, we have a uh, constituency in evangelicalism that looks at the world around us and sees things. I even saw this today. Um, the Pope sat down with a Muslim leader, and there were, I don't know, I didn't even see the news story, but it was like, oh no, it's a one world government, and the world's going to end. And that's, we, we have a, a section of evangelicalism that wants and needs things to get worse to fit their erroneous theology, which that way Jesus can come back. But Jesus says in the midst of the trouble, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. And there's a reason why we shouldn't be troubled. So instead of fear, instead of worry, instead of de despondency, the disciples are told to have faith, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the Father, to believe in God. So, Jesus is Moses. Moses is going away. Joshua is coming. The Holy Spirit is Joshua. Don't fret. Don't fret. See, a greater Joshua will now lead a new Israel through a wider Jordan so that a larger covenant people can follow in a worldwide promised land. That's why dispensationalism doesn't work. Because we are not to be, you know, you, you see the Zionists all the time. They say things like, we are pro-Israel. I'd like to know if they're pro-Pakistan. Israel is God's people. It's a nation that belongs to God. Okay, Jesus bought the nations with his blood. I'll, I'll give you that. But he also purchased Pakistan. He also purchased South Africa. So this weird Zionistic thing doesn't work in a text like this because the promised land is not going to be returned to the quote-unquote Jews, whoever that is. No, we have a new Joshua, a greater Joshua, leading a new Israel through a wider Jordan so that a larger covenant people can follow into a worldwide promised land. See, Jesus's earthly ministry began by baptism in the Jordan. His earthly ministry is going to end when evil washes over him completely at the cross. But that's going somewhere. That's doing something, and it's leading to this new exodus. But there's a question that you should be thinking about. There's a question that confronts us, given what I just described. If, if a new Joshua is coming to, to lead a new people of God, where is the promised land then? Now, I want to warn you up front about something that I'm about to say, because I have a minority view here, um, but I think I'm right. You decide. You have to decide if my argument is airtight. Hint, it is. Which you have to decide. You have the right and duty of private judgment, and you need to make this call. But I'm just letting you up front. What I'm about to say is a minority view uh, overwhelmingly minority view. <laughs> Look at verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. 
If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, what is that talking about? Most commentators take this to mean that Jesus is going back to heaven to prepare a big house with, well, as Audio Adrenaline taught us in 1993, lots and lots of room. That's what people think. Now, uh, Rush Dooney himself, who we um, appreciate around these parts, Rush Dooney himself believed that to be the case. He believed that Jesus was talking about going to heaven to prepare this big, big house, this big room in heaven, and then he's going to come back to us. A lot of people take that as the rapture and take us to him. Um, I don't believe this is a correct view. I don't, I don't think uh, Rush had this correct And I want to show you why I think that. Skip down to verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Note the language of the Spirit abiding with you and will be in you. In verse 18, Jesus says that he will not leave them as orphans and that he will come to them, which is not about the second coming of Christ, but rather is about Jesus coming by his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live in them. In other words, after his death and resurrection, he comes to them again. That's where he's going that they cannot go. He's going to the cross. They cannot go there. That's his death to have, not theirs. But he's going to die, but he's going to come to them. He's going to come. This is not the second coming of Christ. This is Jesus coming in his resurrection after that were, afterwards. So, but even after the ascension to the Father, he comes to them again. And the way that Jesus comes, and there's, there's like lots of versions of Jesus' coming. His coming in judgment on Israel in AD 70. His coming in judgment in history as he rides um, on the horse of Revelation 19. Um, victorious throughout history, but he comes to them again through the Spirit. They are not orphans. They are not without a home. Now, look again at 19 through 21. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, listen to this. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Again, he is going away, as in going to his death. But they will see him after his death, in his resurrection, because he lives. And Jesus' living thus secures our living in him. And he says in that day, in verse 20, the disciples are going to know something. They're going to know that Jesus is in the Father. The resurrection is the proof that's in the pudding, right? That's what he's been saying all along. I and the Father are one. I'm doing what the Father says to do. We're on the same page here. And they will know that they will be in Christ, and Christ will be in them. And then in verse 21, this this knowledge of Christ, this knowing him through the Spirit, leads to an obedience of Christ's, Christ's commandments, and it's an evidence of love for him. And of course, this disclosure is actually what the ESV calls manifestation. Jesus will manifest himself. He will reveal himself to them. So the other Judas is there. They're having this discussion. Presumably, this is still uh, happening in the upper room. 
they're having a discussion and Judas wants to know, why, why are you going to manifest yourself, disclose yourself to, to the disciples for us and not the world? I thought this was like a big picture kingdom thing. Well, he doesn't understand the mustard seed process of the gospel. But this is why I take a minority view on this passage. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And what does he say next? We will come to him and make our abode with him, or our house with him. Is the final dwelling place Jesus mentions in verses 2 to 3 heaven? Not according to this verse. In fact, it says the opposite. Je- listen, Jesus isn't building a big, big house with lots and lots of room in heaven. Okay, He's building a house here on earth. He's building a house here on earth. More on this in a moment. Um, Jesus spoke these things while abiding with them, verse 25, but he wants them to understand that this process will not leave them without guidance. He's not leaving them without power and guidance and, and, and discernment. He has told them repeatedly about the unity he has with the Father. He tells them in verse 10 that the Father abides in him and he in the Father. And the disciples, and by extension, all of us here in this room at this moment, When we believe on Christ, we believe on the Father, and greater works we will do. See, when we pray, why do we pray in in Jesus' name? Well, in prayer, all of you who pray, or maybe you didn't pray this week and you need to repent, but wherever you're at, but when we pray, theologically, we are communing with the triune God. We are communing with God. Um, and that's not just communication, it's communion itself. We are in Him and He's in us. And we ask all of what we ask in Christ's name because we're doing it in accordance to His character, to His person. And then Jesus says in verse 14 that He will do it. He will answer that prayer. See, in other words, all this stuff is Him reminding them that we're not alone here. We're not orphans. See, if you take that verse to mean that Jesus is going to heaven to build a big, big house with a big yard, we can play football with a big table with lots and lots of food. I actually went back and listened to that song again today. Bit of nostalgia. If we take that to mean that Jesus is building a house up there, guess what? We're orphans here because we don't have a home. And that's what erroneous theology teaches that, you know, heaven's our home. Heaven's not your home. Heaven is like a glorified hotel while Jesus builds your real home on earth. So we're not orphans. We're not strangers. We're not exiles on earth. Uh, Jordan's written some good stuff on this. Uh, You should check it out. We're not. We're not exiles. We're not strangers on earth. And Jesus tells him in verses 16 and 17 that he's sending a helper, the paraclete, the advocate, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it doesn't know him or know him. In other words, it doesn't know, see him or know him. The regenerate of God, that's us, the covenant people, children included. You have a helper who lives in you. The world does not have such things. You covenant children, the Holy Spirit works in your life and you should trust him to guide you, to help you be patient, to to cultivate spiritual things in your life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, all of those things. And this helper, look at verse 26, is sent by the Father and the Son 
to teach the disciples to, mind, to bring to mind everything Christ has taught. This, this advocate is peace, he is peace, and he comes from Christ, which means that all of us in this room have ample reason to not worry about things. There, I know people who have been handicapped their entire life with a, with a theology where they won't have children because they don't want them growing up in this world. It's a retreatist mentality. They're handicapped by this. They're, they're just debilitating theology. <coughs> but we have peace. Jesus is going to the Father, but they will have help. And the ruler of the world is coming to try and snuff out the light, he says in verse 30, but he will not have the last word. Now, this passage is really quite interesting, no doubt. And for many of us, um, we're still trying to shake off the Neoplatonic dualism that we grew up with. Me, speaking for myself, um, I was a dualist, which I'll explain in a minute, for a long, long time, because I was an ardent defender. I went to Bible college ready to fight. I was an ardent defender of rapture theology. Um, I moved to Philly. You know, I, I was studying all the rapture books. Pentecost was my guy, Charles Ryrie. I went to the college. One, one of the, uh, Charles Ryrie helped start the college in, in Philly there. So I, for me, I believe that the material world was, was bad. It wasn't good. Um, that's why you can't listen to, to certain music. That's why you can't do certain things. Instead of maturely listening and maturely discerning, um, I was told not to partake in any of those things. I, the material world is seen as bad, and the goal of the rapture was to get us from the material world and move us into the spiritual world up there. And this thinking has its origin in Greek philosophy, which has infiltrated the West, and of course it's infiltrated the church because of it. And the way that it's infiltrated the church is through those erroneous doctrines. And, and I'm picking on dispensationalism a little bit tonight because I used to be one. But Reformed people who should know better have a platonic and a dualistic thing where they'll say we're strangers and exiles on this earth when no Bible passage teaches us such things. See, what we need to get into our minds is the fact that the kingdom of God, which came through the person and work of Christ in the first century, is meant to deal with things here and now, not later. See, we're not waiting for Jesus to come back so that he can be Joshua and lead us to heaven. That's not what this passage is teaching. We are, like, like Aaron read in Ephesians 2 and Hebrews 3, we are a house. We are a place where God dwells. See, we're not supposed to try and get off the earth to dwell with God. We're dwelling with God right now. And so the earth is our home. The earth is our home. All the unregenerate are the ones just passing through. They're the exiles. They're the strangers. See, Aaron read those passages just a bit ago, and I, and I picked them because they illustrate quite perfectly why I see this text the way I see it. So think about it think about it this way earlier in the gospel of John when did Jesus use the term my father's house he only used it one at a time do you remember back in chapter 2 he used it to describe the temple when it was being desecrated remember my house shall not be a house of prayer and not be a den of thieves or brigands and robbers and such my father's house was language for the temple and every Jew knew that every Jewish person knew that's my father's house. 
But Jesus is clearly not speaking of the temple here. In fact, he's deliberately changing that which is my father's house. There's a shift here in his thinking. Instead of the temple, which is polluted and leprous and ripe for destruction, there is something else going on in the text. The place that Jesus is going to prepare is not heaven, as if heaven was sort of this ramshackled shack that needed an upgrade. God dwells in the heavenly places. It's perfect. It doesn't need a new paint job. It doesn't need new plumbing. It doesn't need a new exterior. It's quite good. He's not preparing a place in heaven, but he's preparing one on earth. See, Jesus is going to the cross to establish the kingdom of God on earth. His Father's house is not a fixed concrete temple, but it's a city. The city of God we see in Revelation. And it's a place where God abides with man and man with God. So that's why we're no longer strangers and exiles and aliens, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're citizens in God's household. Christ is the cornerstone. And Peter says that we're living stones that are being built up. So this is why we are now a part of the house Jesus built. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. He destroyed the adulterous covenant people and their idolatrous temple. And he established in its place a new house where there is no curtain of division. Moses, in Hebrews 3, was a servant in God's house. But Christ is the son of the house. He is the inheritance of the house. And we read earlier from 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build this glorious temple for God, a temple that was made with human hands. But God told him that he wasn't allowed to do it, but that his son Solomon would do it. But the real prophecy points to Jesus, who is a son of David. He is the man to whom God has given a royal kingdom. That's the house. Solomon's temple was just a picture. It was a picture. In fact, Moses got the plans from the tabernacle by seeing heaven and mimicking it. But now we have the true temple, which it was all pointing to. See, all of this is not language about heaven. The disciples did not take it this way. I, I can imagine them sitting there and Peter's scratching his head. Wait, hold on. So you're going back to heaven. Certainly they had an understanding of where God dwelt, but it was a bigger understanding. A Jewish understanding of the world was that God dwelt with man. And it was exemplified in the tabernacle and in the temple. There wasn't this here on earth, there up there. It was a bigger picture view. So it's not about heaven. Then the disciples didn't take it that way. Jesus left them in his death. He came back to them. He gave his advocate and he sent them into the world. This is the house that Jesus built. All of you are the house that Jesus built. It's his kingdom. It's his people. It's all of us. You kids are a part of this house too. We have been brought into this royal family. We are the new Israel advancing into the world for the glory of Christ. We are not homeless. We are not orphans. We have a home, and it is earth. And that's essentially the vision that John sees in Revelation. If you remember the end of Revelation, um, the city is a new bride who supersedes the old adulterous bride. And this city expands and grows and is cultivated in the entire world. That's the Father's house. The Father's house is that which Jesus has established by His blood and through His empty tomb, and it is His mediatorial reign right now, right now, today, this very second. And we're wrapping up here. 
which means that for you and I, we now live in a house, and guess what? Our roommate is a defense attorney. Our roommate is a defense attorney. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, he says, and he lives in us. All of that's legal, legal terminology. As we, as we partake of the covenant of Christ, and we take this covenant into the world through the preaching of the gospel, through, the, through, through combating injustice, through promoting mercy and, and love and service, the advocate spirit is with us, and he is helping us press judicial charges and helping us build the house. We have an advocate. This house is indestructible. See, and discipleship means then for all of you and us, me, discipleship means dwelling in this house that Jesus built. Being a disciple, Jesus assumes here, is being the type of person that loves Christ, loves his commandments, a person who prays to his Father in his name and doesn't give himself over to worry and anxiety. Don't fear, he says. Don't be troubled. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He has built a house, and this house city is a place of respite, a place of comfort, a place where you can lay your weary head. Jesus was homeless in order to build a home for you, to take up residence inside of you, which should humble us all. Lastly, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the way into the house, the way of experiencing the house, the way of knowing truth, the way of being free, of having life and escaping death. It's a person, not a place, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you confident in the promise we have just received from your word. We believe and we confess that the way to truth and life is found only in Christ. The way to you, Father, is him. And we rejoice in this. We are glad this day that you have sent your Son, our King, to build a house that can withstand evil. And my prayer today is that you would help us, Spirit, help us to live in this house the way we're supposed to do, to keep it clean and orderly, to keep it um, um, keep the fire burning inside of us, God. Help us to love Christ and obey his commandments. Make us holy, God, and that's an audacious prayer because we're asking you to do whatever it takes to do that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.